Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com slash live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Good morning, everybody. I echo Paul's words. We made it. 2020 is over. We finally made it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, I've got the, uh, I've got the honor and the privilege of being able to preach to you all the first Sunday of uh, the new year, and I've got to give a shout out to Cliff House. Now, every year, I think it was tradition that he would get up and he would say, uh, congratulations, if you made it here the first Sunday of the new year, you have perfect attendance for the entire new year. So congratulations. My first, I think it was my, actually my first official Sunday on staff was a New Year's Sunday two years ago, and he started to make that joke, and Anne Marie ran up behind him and tried to cover his mouth. She hates that joke. But she's our children's pastor now, she's upstairs, so she's not going to know I made this joke until it's way too late to try and stop me. So the tradition stands, Cliff. <laughs> Happy New Year's, everyone, and I think we are all thrilled given your reactions to the two different times that we've said 2020 is over. And our sermon bumper video, I think it's obvious, we are all happy to have said goodbye to 2020. And eventually, it will be nothing but a distant memory. Unfortunately, those memories are uh, very near to us right now, but as of 72 hours ago, we are finally starting to kiss the memories of 2020 goodbye. Um, and I got to tell you, most years... I don't stay up till midnight. In my thought process, I will see the new year at a reasonable time in eight in the morning. I don't stay up. I wanted to stay up till midnight this year. I wanted to be able to experience the first several seconds of 2020 being gone. And so I actually stayed up till midnight. Uh, eventually, I'd regretted it the next day, but I still stayed up that, till midnight that day. Now, I think that we can all say that 2020 was categorically not a great year. I think that's fair to say. We had a slobber knocker of an election. We had civil unrest, not to mention the pandemic. Um, but let's take a look back. Not everything this year was absolutely terrible. Let's look at some of the more lighter-hearted things that happened in this past year. Tiger King. Do you guys remember this? This was early on into lockdowns and the pandemic. Like, this became newsworthy of how popular this show became. And it was here in Oklahoma, I think. I never got into it, but this became super popular. We were clearly in lockdown. We were clearly a bored nation. Next one, Miley Cyrus, a girl that has millions of followers. Uh, you know, girls in our youth group follow this young woman. She claimed that she was abducted by aliens. That's scary to me. Murder hornets. If my house was ever infested with murder hornets, I would just burn the thing down. Like, I'm not... <laughs> and Macaulay Culkin, the kid from Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin turned 40. Who feels old now? You share a birthday. You share a birthday, yeah. This guy turned 40. Man, it's crazy. I just want to go back in time and be like, Macaulay, things do not get better for you after Home Alone. But... So there's some uh, lighter things that happened uh, kind of in, so, uh, in media, on the news, but there was one milestone that I hit personally this year, and I've said it several times, and most people laugh at me. I uh, started growing my first gray hairs this year, and 
You guys, you guys clap or chuckle. I was devastated. Like, I had a one-third life crisis. I was, it wasn't good. There's a reason I grew my hair out, and I'm kind of flipping it back, is because it hides those gray hairs. Like, oh. I started filling out a will and everything, leaving all my, all my money to Zeke and Zoe. I could send them to college on that money, too. Literally, I could fill up their gas tanks and send them physically to college, driveway to driveway, as long as they go to college in Kansas, inflation doesn't get out of control, and they're driving really fuel-efficient vehicles. But the most important thing, all joking aside, the most important thing to remember about the year of 2020, and as we continue into the year of 2021, is that God is on the throne, and only he will ever occupy that throne. Amen? At the start of the, uni- uh, of the new year, and actually at the start of every day, it is important to remind ourselves that God is still God, but that begs the question, what is the character and what is the nature of God? What is, why is it important to remember that at the new year and at the start of every morning? Now, the sermon can't exhaustively go through the character and the nature of God completely. You know, there's not enough years in any of our lifespans left for us to be able to go through that. And even if we could live for eternity here on this earth, we still couldn't describe the character and the nature of God because of how great and incomprehensibly great God is. But there are a couple things that I think are important to remember as we start this new year. Um, at the threshold of the, year, of the new year, here are some very important reminders of some of the aspects of God. First off, God is a God of clean slates. Now, Psalm 51 is written uh, directly after, it's written by King David, it's written directly after the events that happened with David and Bathsheba. And so, uh, if you guys aren't familiar, quick recap on the story of David and Bathsheba. So David is, is in Jerusalem. In fact, in, in 2 Samuel, uh, I believe it's uh, 14, it says, it's the time where kings, it was springtime, the time where kings go off to war. But David stayed back in Jerusalem. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. That's one good principle in the story. But David stayed back in Jerusalem. And so he is on his balcony and he is surveying the city of Jerusalem. He is looking out. He's probably feeling pretty good. He's the most powerful man on the face of the planet at that point in time. And he sees, lo and behold, underneath this balcony of his Bathsheba, a very young, very pretty, very attractive girl. And so David calls to one of his aides and he says, who is that? And I think David's attendant, David's, you know, servants, like, trying to throw him a bone here, like, king, don't go forth, you know, warning, warning. He says, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. That's Uriah's wife, King David. Now, who was Uriah? Why is that important? First off, Uriah was one of 37 of David's most elite fighting men. He was one of 37 men that was most loyal to King David. He would have been with King David in the wilderness as he's being chased by Saul on two separate occasions. He would have been right next to him fighting the Philistines. He would have been one of David's very best friends, most loyal soldiers. And so the attendant's like, that's Uriah's wife, King David. Don't go forth. Well, King David ignores maybe the subtle warning and King David brings Bathsheba into the palace. They sleep together. A couple days later, uh-oh, King David, I'm pregnant. And where is Uriah? Uriah is where he's supposed to be. He's out fighting Philistines. And so King David's in a pickle. King David is, is not looking uh, too hot right now. 
And so he is starting to worry, well, how am I going to get over this? How am I going to, you know, resolve this, etc.? Bring Uriah back, bring Uriah back. We're going to throw him a party, and then he'll go back and do what married people do when they haven't seen each other in a while. Bada bing, bada boom, everything's going to be good. So Uriah comes back, and they throw Uriah a party, and King David's, all right, go back on home. Have fun. Do whatever you want to do. And he said, well, no, I'm not going to do that. My brothers in arms are fighting and dying fighting the Philistines. I'm sleeping here on the palace steps. That'd be dishonorable for me. I'm not, not going to do that. And so King David said, darn, plan B. Plan B is I'm going to sign a letter, send it to Joab with, um, with Uriah. I'm sending him back to the war, and I'm going to basically be signing his political assassination on this letter. It says, put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is fierce, most fierce, and he, he sends it with Uriah. Uriah has to hand deliver his own death sentence to, king, uh, or to the commander of the armies, Joab. It, it's, it's really disgusting. It's really disgusting. And what happens, uh, what King David wants to happen is exactly what happens. The plan goes off without a hitch. Uriah falls to the Philistines. And so uh, David takes Bathsheba in as his wife, and then the news breaks that King David's new wife is now pregnant. And so King David looks like he's in the clear, like he's a still a very honorable king, that he got away scot-free. But then a prophet by the name of Nathan comes, and he says to King David, he says, King David, I got a story for you, something kind of going down in the kingdom, I think you should know about it. There's this really, really, really rich man. Uh, he has more cattle, more sheep, more goats, more, more than what he would ever possibly need in one lifetime, in many lifetimes. But he's got a neighbor and this guy has one sheep. This guy has one sheep. And this sheep, is, because it's his only one, he treats it like a family member. He loves this thing. It's like his own kid. Um, and then the rich guy had a friend over, and instead of sacrificing one of the tens of thousands of sheep or goats or whatever that this guy has, he takes the poor man's sheep, sacrifices that, and eats it. And King David immediately becomes severely angry and says, I want this guy dead. This guy deserves to be punished by death. And he says, who is this man? And King David looks, or in, uh, the prophet Nathan looks into the most powerful man on the face of the planet's eyes at that point in time and says, you are that man. Ouch. That hurts. Nathan uh, held up a mirror to King David that day and showed him his sinfulness, what he had done. And David does something that we all need to remember and all need to put into practice in our lives as Christians. Remember, God is a God of clean slates. That means that when we repent, God forgives. God wipes the slate clean. Here's a couple excerpts from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7 to 9, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew in me a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. I love that. Just whatever you do, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. 
We see a man broken by his own sinfulness, crying out to God that he's a sinful man, that he needs to be forgiven, that he needs to turn his life around and start following God the way that he should. And I think that our version of repentance, our definition of repentance isn't repentance in God's definition. Our definition so many times of repentance is guilt. Our definition of repentance is synonymous with guilt, but that's not what Scripture calls us to. Repentance isn't guilt. Repentance is acknowledging your sin, yes, but then giving that sin to God and moving on. And the sad reality is I think most Christians get to the point where they acknowledge their sinfulness, but they stay stuck there, and they stay in their guilt there. And honestly, if Satan can cripple the church and can cripple Christians by paralyzing them in their guilt, then Satan is a very happy man. But that's not the definition of biblical repentance, and that's not the God's definition of repentance. True repentance is certainly acknowledging your own sinfulness, crying out to God, and then moving on with the plan that God has in place for your life. God has forgiven you. We need to forgive ourselves. So some of us in this room for 2021 need to take that and apply that to our lives. Follow David's lead and repent, but repent biblically and move on in the grace and the love of God. The second thing that God is, something that we need to keep in mind in 2021, is that God is pro-lost being found. <clears throat> John 8, 1 through 11 uh, starts the story of Mary Magdalene. At dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, law, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard, to begin, who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. First off, um, I love the position, the very awkward position that Jesus puts these Pharisees in. So these Pharisees prided themselves on being almost as perfect as you could possibly be in following the law of Moses. That's what they prided themselves on, and they wanted everybody to know how good they were at following the law of Moses. They would come to, they were so good at it that they would tie the spices in their kitchen. That's how meticulous they were at following the uh, Mosaic law. And so they're bringing uh, this woman, they're bringing Mary Magdalene, up to Jesus and said, according to the law of Moses, this woman deserves to be stoned. What do you say? Once again, they're trying to trap them. They're trying to out-Mosaic law Jesus. They're trying to uh, outwit Jesus to try and show that they are superior in their understanding of the Mosaic law over Jesus. And they've done this several different times, and they've never succeeded. You think eventually they would realize they had been beat. Um, and so Jesus says, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. 
And so that means that they have got to do one of two things. They've either got to publicly acknowledge that even though they are close to perfect and they want everybody to think that they're close to perfect, they still have to acknowledge the fact that they are sinful and they aren't perfect. Or the other thing is they publicly shame themselves by saying that they are perfect, which everybody know would be a blatant lie. And so they either have to publicly admit they're sinful or publicly sin themselves. And so they are in a real pickle when it comes to what Jesus says, if you are without sin, cast the first stone. This would have been devastating to a Pharisee to have to publicly admit in front of other Jewish people that they aren't perfect or sin publicly. They were perceived to be the ultra-elite holy men, even though most of them wouldn't know the love of God if it slapped them in the face. But the position that Jesus put them in would have been very, very uh, difficult for them. <clears throat> and so by the end of the uh, scripture, by the end of the story, no one is left standing next to Mary Magdalene other than Jesus. And he asked her, who is there to condemn you? No one. Then I don't condemn you either. Only Jesus would have been the one that actually had the qualifications to throw a stone. But Jesus isn't in the business of condemnation. He's in the business of restoration, and that's exactly what he did with Mary Magdalene. Mary's life changed that day. She became a devout follower of Jesus. She was one of the first people to witness the empty tomb. She went from a state of be nearly being condemned to death because of her sinfulness to finding new life in Christ. God is pro-lost being found. Another way to say it is God is in the business of restoration. And some of us today need to be a patron of that business known as the restoring love and the grace of God. If that's you, talk to one of the elders, talk to one of our staff. That's our calling, that's our passion to be able to guide people to Jesus. And I've got some really awesome news. You can see the baptistry light on right now. We've got two young men making that decision today. Third thing that we need to remember. And technology must have stopped working on me. But God is God who sends. That's S-E-N-D-S. -E that sounds very close to S-I-N-S. Sends. God is a God who sends. He's a God who sends people out into the world to bring a light to darkness and to bring his kingdom here on earth. We see the Apostle Peter on the Sea of Galilee three different times throughout Scripture. The first time that we see Peter on the Sea of Galilee is the first time that Peter meets Jesus. So Peter is fishing, Jesus is teaching, he's actually teaching on Jesus' boat uh, because the crowds were gathering so far, he had to go back out a little bit further into the water so that everybody could see and hear him, and so he's, he's teaching these things about the Jewish faith, he's teaching these things about himself, and so to uh, put legitimacy to his claims, he looks over to Simon Peter and says, now put your nets on the other side of the boat, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And uh, Simon Peter's response is, Sir, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. But since you've asked me to, I mean, you got a crowd, I won't say no, I won't, you know, I won't cause a fuss, but I could just see Peter kind of haphazardly just throwing the net in the water, expecting nothing. But it's that Scripture says that the catch, the catch was so big that it started to break the nets. In fact, Peter had to call over a second boat with more future apostles of Jesus just to get all the fish into the boat. And so Peter is now realizing who this guy is, that he's worthy of his worship, that he's worthy uh, to be followed. And Jesus says the classic line, I will make you fishers of men. 
The second time that we see Peter on the Sea of Galilee is right after Jesus feeds the, uh, feeds the 5,000 men, so probably closer to fifteen to 20,000 people in all. But he just gets done feeding that, that famous story of feeding the 5,000, and Jesus uh, says, you guys go ahead, cross the Sea of Galilee, I'll meet you on the other side, I need to spend some time alone, need to meditate, need to spend some time with my father. And so the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm hits. And you got to remember, these guys are fishermen. These guys don't, they know how to navigate storms. They know how to keep their cool in a storm when they're out on a boat. But even this storm was wigging these guys out. They were scared. And so Jesus just uh, decides that, I'm not going to walk around the lake. I'll just walk on the water through the lake, and we'll be good. And so they see Jesus walking on the water in the crowd. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Jesus says, no, no, it's not. <laughs> and Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you. And Peter says, or Jesus says, come. And so Peter, to his credit, he got out and walked on the water, and it was successful for a little bit. Like, he, Peter catches a lot of heat by preachers a lot, especially over this story, because we all know the story. Eventually, the waves and the wind distract Peter, and he becomes scared, and he starts to sink, and Jesus has to save him. But at least he got out of the boat. If, if Jesus was like, Brett, come out of the boat to me. I'm, I'm good. I mean, you're heading my way. I'm fine. I, I'm perfectly comfortable right here, Jesus. Peter got out of the boat. Kudos to Peter. There's, I, I've heard this saying that there's going to be a line of people at the pearly gates, all of them preachers, to apologize for all the heat that Peter got from us. But then the third thing, and I, this is so Peter-esque, one of my, I think my favorite story of Peter uh, when we see him in the Sea of Galilee is this. It's the very last chapter of John. Jesus has already resurrected. Jesus has already resurrected, and Peter has seen this. He has witnessed the resurrection with his own eyes. He's witnessed the resurrection with his own eyes, but he is still broken and guilty because of what happened at the scene of the crucifixion just days earlier, where, Jesus, or where Peter denied Jesus three different times. And so Peter has not been reinstated back as an apostle. Even though Jesus had been resurrected, he had not been reinstated as an apostle. And so he's racked with guilt. And one of the biggest principles that I learned in counseling was that when people don't know what to do, they do what they know how to do. And Peter didn't know what to do. So he did what he knew how to do, he went back to go fishing. And so he's fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and Scripture says that they're about 100 yards out, and Jesus just pops back up again. And, you know, they're 100 yards out, and he cries out to the men in the boat. It would have been the other fishermen, the other apostles that were fishermen there with Peter. And he says, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And so, the, you know, they're looking. They can see the figure, but it's far enough away that they can't distinguish that it's Jesus and so, once again, they throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and the same thing happens that happened at the very first time that Jesus told them to do that. The nets became so heavy that they couldn't even pick him up. And so the other apostle says, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And Peter uh, decides to take off his outer garment, garment and just, boom, Michael Phelps it, go straight into the water and make a beeline for Jesus. The boat was going too slow for Peter. He was going to make a beeline for Jesus. Now, taking off your outer garment, jumping out of a boat, would have been pretty shameful in the first century, but Peter doesn't care. Peter doesn't care. He's getting to Jesus as quick as possible. 
And so while they are having breakfast on the shore, Jesus asked Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, of course I love you. Peter, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Simon Peter, do you love me? And then Peter's like, gets, he gets offended. Like, Lord, I'm hurt. You know I love you. Well, Peter, it's kind of a fair question to ask. And each time that Peter responded with, of course, Lord, you know I love you, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. After the third time, Jesus says that <clears throat> when you were younger, you wore what you wanted to wear, you went where you wanted to go, you did what you wanted to do. But now, that's no longer true. I am going to point you to the places where you don't want to go and point you to do the things that you don't want to do. And in fact, he's specifically talking about the fact that Peter is going to be crucified and crucified upside down because that's what Peter requested at the end of his life. So that I don't deserve to be executed the way that my Lord was. Will you please execute me? Will you please crucify me upside down? Jesus is giving him a foreshadowing of the fact that life's going to be tough for you now, Peter. The act of feeding my sheep is going to be tough. But that is my mission for you. And we see in Acts chapter 2 the promise of Peter becoming the rock on which the church stands. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and over a thousand people, 2,000 men, become baptized because Peter is doing the mission of feeding the sheep that God asked him to do. And some of us, and I would say all of us, if we are Christians and we call ourselves Christians and we practice Christianity, that we are in the business of feeding sheep. Because there is darkness in this world. We've seen it this year probably more so than any other year. At least it's been put, you know, been brought into our attention more. There's darkness in the world that we are required as Christians to bring light to. And so I think all of us in this room today is in one of these three, one of these three boats that we got to remember that God is a God of clean slates and forgiveness and grace is there and that repentance is possible because of the nature of who God is. Secondly, that God is pro-lost being found, that we can come to God, no strings attached, knowing his absolute love for us because of the cross of Christ. And then three, that we as Christians are the ones that are the proclaimers of the gospel to this world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's a new year. God, you are a God of new beginnings. And Lord, we thank you for that. It's nice to have a beginning, a new beginning after this year. Lord, I ask that you please motivate us in the areas of our heart that are not yet fully surrendered to you, Lord. I ask that you please help us to have the motivation and the discipline to turn those over to you. God, I ask that if anybody is in here today that, that needs to come to you for the first time, Lord, that they do so. Lord, I ask for the people that, that need to repent and that they need to get over their sinfulness and that they need to move on with the plan that you have in place for them, that they would do that. And then lastly, Lord... I pray that you motivate us, that you give us the eyes to see the opportunities that you put in our place to be able to spread your love and spread your word. Lord, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.